players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Force of Will, Wasteland, Dark Ritual, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory! The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicsFirm.com. This episode is sponsored by Sparks Law, a business transactional law firm owned by Eternal Magic Community member Jonathan Sparks. Hello, and welcome to episode 115 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Organized Play and the Great Proxy Debate. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, a.k.a. Thraben U. I am Brian Koval, a.k.a. Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Pre-show is pretty good today. You can hear us kind of talk about some of our uh, secret CEDH thoughts going into the boil. That's true. That is coming up. Secret thoughts. Also, how I feel about weddings. Uh, That's available. Shout out to our new members who are going to enjoy that content this week. We've got Jay and Dusty from Patreon. And then from YouTube, we've got Buster D, Mike N, the great Mike Noble. I'll just say his full name. Dox him. Uh, Chuan and Skippy TLB, which I hope is not your real name. Bunch of new members since the last one. Shout out to all of you and everyone who continues to support the show. Speaking of, this episode is brought to you by Sparks Law, a business transactional firm owned by Eternal Magic community member Jonathan Sparks. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or gig worker looking to start your own company, Sparks Law can help with partnership agreements, contract reviews, intellectual property protection, or any other business legal questions. If you want to shape your business strategy with a fellow Eternal Gamer who actually knows what they're talking about, reach out via email to jsparks, that is J-S-P-A-R-K-S, at sparkslawpractice.com, or call 470-268-5234. And if you want to advertise to our 10,000 plus Eternal Gamers every episode, feel free to reach out. We're always accepting new sponsors. All right. So most of our episodes focus directly on legacy and Eternal Magic, but today's episode is going to be a little bit more indirectly focused on that. There's There's been a lot of Twitter discourse recently um, and good conversation around organized play, card prices, Tiny events, proxies, disqualifications for using fake magic cards or real magic cards that were considered marked. Um, Cedric Phillips has had some awesome things to say. There was a ton of discourse that started after a tiny 231-person 20K. So today we're going to kind of talk about where organized play was pre-COVID kind of what happened with COVID, and assuming that we have some time, an ideal future for what organized play might look like in the future, if it is going to kind of come back and revive. 
And I just want to clarify a piece of terminology that we're going to be using, and that's pre and post COVID. COVID is still out there. Uh, we mean pre and post lockdown primarily. Uh, I I know there are folks who feel strongly that the term post COVID is really dangerous to the world. And we just mean pre and post COVID lockdown, but we will probably be saying post COVID. And that's what we mean by it. All right. So let's start with kind of the, the, the pre-lockdown magic, you know, what many of us might think of as the glory days of, of organized play. If you are a player in or around any sort of major city, you can, on most weekends of the month, travel two or three hours and play in some sort of major event of some kind. Be that a GP, an IQ, an SCG Open, an SCG Classic, there, there's just a lot out there. I should also specify that we are coming from uh, northeastern and uh, southern but east coast world, which I, I know we were in the heat of the SCG circuit. Uh, all of our locations are there. Um, shout out to players in Latin America or Africa or whoever who this was never true for, but we are doing our best to paint a picture of what was going on before the lockdown and what's going on after, like what kind of support there was, at least in the areas that we could access. Like Phil said, Star City Games had a booming circuit. Uh, and when there wasn't a main event, any store could hold host an SCG IQ that you could play at the local level, then have a reason to go to the Star City Invitational and Grand Prix. You want to talk about Grand Prix? I know Bryant was very excited in our notes about Grand Prix, and they were pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, everybody loves Star City Opens, but after Star City went from the massive events on day one into a massive event on day two, they went to the Grand Prix circuit because it allowed the cream of the crop to rise. You could afford more than one loss and still make the playoffs. But on top of that, the glory of top eating a Grand Prix just in your community meant so much more than top eating an SCG. Like, oh, you top eating a Grand Prix, having that Grand Prix trophy, because it meant a little bit more. I mean, you got to be on the Pro Tour, which wasn't always true of Star City. I mean, especially in the early days, but Grand Prix were the pinnacle and Legacy was actually supported as a Grand Prix format. How crazy is that? Yeah, for those of you who missed this whole era, a Grand Prix was a 15 round tournament where you had to go. I mean, the record changed as they played with the, the structure a little bit in the, the waning years, but generally X2 or better. So 7-2 on day one, you get to play day two. And if you don't go X2 or better, you don't get to come which is different than straight Swiss tournaments where everyone gets to play every round. There was actually a cut and day one of Grand Prix was run at competitive rules enforcement level. And day two of Grand Prix was run at professional rules enforcement level. This was an actual pro level event where you could win pro points. And back in the day, pro points added up to pro invites and pro status and getting access to pro points in between pro tour events meant that pros, like the people you're excited to be in a room with, the people who the magic competitive storyline is built around are actually going to be there. I know there was a big run where uh, Shuhei Nakamura and Martin Yuza and Alex Schwartman, I think was the other guy, were going to every Grand Prix. Three weekends in a row, they'd be in California, Prague, and Osaka. And it was just really exciting storyline to follow. And you could be in the room with those people and uh, it was just a very cool thing, and there were reasons to be there. 
yeah, the Pro Tour was kind of this like aspirational thing for a huge number of people. Like, you know, someday I want to play in a Pro Tour. You know, I want to play the Pro Tour. You know, maybe I'll get to go to Europe when I do that. And so people would go to events that like would lead into buys for the, the GPs. People would test for GPs, you know, a month or more in advance. PTQs were also a thing where a larger local level store could just, you know, play something that, you know, hey, this event, which is smaller than a GP by a lot, can get you to the Pro Tour. Yep, you were playing for real things that led to other real things. When I won the Grand Prix that I won, it qualified me for three Pro Tours. That's insane. A lot of people grind season after season trying to queue for one Pro Tour. I won one tournament that queued me for three of them in a row. That, unfortunately... It was right at the end of the, the pre-COVID world before everything locked down. And it turned out that my three Pro Tours in a row didn't actually string together anything, which is going to be something we talk about down the road. Queuing for three Pro Tours just because local-ish Grand Prix in a format you like is kind of the nuts. And the Grand Prix were a, were a spectacle. I went to Grand Prix of formats that I was not an expert in because like Grand Prix were very fun to play in. And also the field at a Grand Prix is relatively soft, um, especially if you compare it to, you know, something like Magic Online or or something like that. The, the GP has, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people or, or whatever. A lot of those players aren't very good. So, like, if you test well and you show up to a, a GP, like, you're probably going to do well. Like, you're probably going to date to a decent portion of the time. Circling back to in the beginning, we talked about how Cedric Phillips dropped some knowledge. And a part of that was the marketing behind it. Brian mentioned that it was aspirational to be on the Pro Tour. So there was this feeling around magic where everybody seemed to want to be on the Pro Tour. And part of that was the marketing. Getting a feature match at a Grand Prix was just so cool. Getting a feature match at a Star City game was awesome. And I just feel like being a part of that or having the opportunity to do that made going to those events so much more exciting yeah like i remember very few individual matches of legacy from events that i played but like i can tell you what happened in like every feature match that i ever played in that was on camera like i know those well i re i think my first one was like versus joe Lissette, uh who was playing true name nemesis the weekend that council or no seth manfield it was versus seth manfield the weekend that council's judgment came out and there was a giant like 10 minute judge call where the judge couldn't tell Seth that he could vote for the same thing that I voted for. And he was trying to figure it out. And like, it was an awesome moment that's on camera forever as I got a Jete and a true name nemesis with a council's judgment. And, you know, that's on video forever. And that was so cool for baby magic player Phil. Yep. Uh, being able to do well and end up in a feature match is exciting. Everybody who's ever been in a feature match, I think, goes home and watches the coverage for their feature match. And I know I certainly do. I, I want to see my own play over again. I want to see what the commentators said about it. Also, just pretty dope that your name is up there enshrined forever in whatever Wizards of the Ghost or Star City Games YouTube. This stuff matters. People like excitement they like attention they like being rewarded in a social way for the work they put in on either their cool deck or their good play to end up in a spot where they get to be featured if you keep doing well it's not a feature match like you become part of the narrative 
of that tournament scene. Like there was this players to watch board that, you know, they'd have all the fan favorite peoples on and like the the people who are running hot this tournament. You got deck techs for players who were doing something new. And like if you brought the spice and you did well with it or you were the first person to figure something out, like you got the clout for that. If that's something that you care about, it's it's so massive. So I did a team event uh, in SCG Wooster that I ended up winning. And going into the final round, my team still was not on the players to watch board at, uh, at X and 1. I feel I, the if I remember correctly, the events were 13 rounds when they were teams. We were 11 and 1 and we were not on the players to watch board. And I just remember that giving me the extra little bit of motivation. I was like, we're going to win this now. Like, I'm so angry. That was a part of it. Like, you wanted to be on those boards. You wanted to get the deck tech with Nick Miller, all of those things. Like, that was a part of going to these events. Yeah, and I played a Star City event that I lost in the finals of with Urza-Thopter combo the week that Modern Horizons 1 came out. I had been working on Urza with Ray Perez online. And then Harlan Fierce stayed at my house for that weekend. It was here in Pittsburgh. And Harlan had a slightly more tuned version of Urza and made some changes to catch up to what Harlan was on. And because I was winning, I think Harlan also top eight of that tournament. I shouldn't say because I was winning, but I ended up being getting the deck tech with Nick Miller. And this was in early 2019, I think, or maybe summer 2019, 2018. Uh, whenever this was, it was a long time ago. And within the last two months, Harlan daggered me by saying, like, remember that time you copied my homework and got the deck tech? So like five years later from a person with countless achievements since then is still it's still in his head how important or how cool it was to get a deck tech. And like, that's what we're talking about here. And these things were cool. They were a reason to show up and become part of the narrative. So during this time span, I was like a beginning teacher every Sunday. Like it was a part of my week. I would sit down. I would do my my lesson planning while watching the legacy coverage for, for that weekend. And that was just like a ritualistic part of my life for, I don't know, like three years or something like that. Like I had a reason to care about the the tournament scene. I had people like both personal friends and people from coverage that, you know, I had grown to like that I was watching for every weekend. And SCG, um, you know, people like Cedric and Nick Miller did such a great job of making people care. And all of that uh, same was true of the Magic Pro Tour. I think SCG actually did better than the Magic Pro Tour did, but the Pro Tour had... The official thing pro tour champion is just heavier than star city open champion even star city invitational champion is not as prestigious as pro tour champion and that's still true the pro tour fed the actual hall of fame which is now completely defunct i think like i think they just stopped doing that there was big things and it's cool to play against dom harvey at an scg open it's cooler to play against reed duke at a grand prix sorry dom harvey you know what i mean these were like the big names. They were on the Magic Mothership. They show up in their team jerseys with all their sponsor logos on it. And it's just a very cool official looking thing that makes you want to be part of it. And this wasn't a one format thing. I'm a legacy boy. I have been a legacy boy for a long time. You bet your ass. I ass. I like both played in and consumed content for like standard, modern and limited as I played in these various events and followed the, you know, my, my friends who were traveling to these tournaments every weekend. 
I had reasons to care about a lot of formats. And so I played them. In a slightly earlier time period, the events were standard on Saturday, legacy on Sunday. And if you were traveling eight hours to go play in Pittsburgh or wherever you were going, you're like, well, if I'm going to drive all that way, I might as well play standard on Saturday. They found a way to get legacy players to play other formats. They eventually ended up changing this because the travel was just insane. This is going to sound like a brag. I don't mean it to be, but I ended up winning SCG Washington and the event ended at 1 a.m., my friend drove us all the way back to Syracuse. When we got back to Syracuse, I literally took a shower and went directly to work. I never slept the entire way home because I had to keep him awake while he was driving. The events ended so late, but that's like what you did for the glory of playing in these SEG events. I definitely should have taken more time to travel when I played these events. Like there were many times where like I, I lived in Roanoke, Virginia. I lived in the heart of SEG. Like that was my local brick and mortar store. But there would be plenty of times where like I would be it in Philly at like 8 p.m. finishing up an event. And it's like, well, shit, I've got work at 730 a.m. tomorrow. And most of that is going to be the drive home. This is just this is just what you do. Yeah. And right now, today, if there was a standalone 20K, if there was a standalone 50K, I would not go to Atlanta just to play in that. My broke college ass in 2008 fired out a Facebook post on Thursday night before Grand Prix Atlanta, the extended Grand Prix. And I was just like, I'm suddenly free. Is anyone headed to Atlanta? And a group from Syracuse, Doug McKay, Dre Segara, and Aaron Webster were like, we are. We, we have to go through Pennsylvania to get there. You want us to scoop you? And Scoop me, they did Friday afternoon. We drove through the night. I think we got to Atlanta like 3, 4 a.m., slept a few hours, and then went to the event. And then we drove home Sunday night after the event was over. And we were happy to do it. And maybe there's some kind of diagnosable mental illness attached to that. <laughs> no chance would I do that if there wasn't like the Pro Tour and Grand Prix Top 8 and like all these really cool accolades on the line. I, I, I simply would not go for a big chunk of money. I, I remember meeting a good friend of mine, um, Carrie, who helped me put together my Thraben University website. I met Carrie on Thursday night at a modern event. We played a bunch of rounds together, kind of chatted afterwards. I think we got dinner or something. One, of, I think it was me. I think I mentioned like that I was thinking about going to Richmond for the SCG event over the weekend. And he was like, oh, sweet. I'll go with you. You want to split a hotel room? And like, that was the start of our friendship. And like, we both just had this desire to go and play because they built such a good narrative. All of these things feeding into each other, these players to watch, these buys into events, this great coverage, player tokens, it, it all fed into an experience that was worth participating in. And there were two additional attachments to this, which will come up big later in our conversation. If you wanted to participate in these events, you had to buy cards. These were all official sanctioned events, many of them sanctioned by Wizards of the Coast, and you needed to own actual Magic the Gathering cards to participate. The ecosystem knew that, and the vendors on site, unless you needed something like really crazy and off meta, they would probably have what you need if you show up. And like the power of a standard Grand Prix is that vendors could just bring like 12x cards in standard and or or whatever it is like i don't know their their packing metrics but they could predict what they would want to sell they could reasonably have cards that you need 
And both of those things have changed a lot. And we'll get to that in a minute. Let's let's start going there now. So COVID-19 starts coming around, lockdown happens, and the pandemic circumstances end up delivering a death blow to many smaller local level shops while also taking out many different like tournament series. If you just go two, maybe three years without kind of having your normal crowd around without doing all of your marketing, without building that player base, uh, it, it it is just disastrous. And so largely the only paper magic that is thriving during this time is webcam play, which for the most part is EDH, is Commander, as it was a way to socialize with people during the lockdown. I sold off my Commander decks in 2014, and I did not think about the format once, and I rebuilt Commander in 2020. Uh, that that's the power of webcam EDH during a time when you could not go play magic in places. A quick note here. I have fond memories of early lockdown because it would just be me plus eight of my friends in a Google Hangouts call with us all just playing magic online together. And uh, I loved it. It made my bonds with some of my friends much stronger. It felt a lot like cramming into a car to drive to an SCG. And uh, I know that it was a tough time period, but I do look f- back family on that. Yeah, there were some silver linings. Another thing that happened, this happened slightly before the world shut down, but it kind of exploded uh, incidentally. Arena started to exist and became publicly available. It created both a third way for players to seriously engage with Magic in, in addition to Paper and MTGO. And it's the first way that was provided by Wizards of the Coast to play Magic for free. You can sign in and grind slowly, grind yourself up to entry to a draft, draft well, and then have a collection from your draft. And you could kind of live the Chandelar dream, which didn't really exist in real life. Like you, I guess you could draft well at your LGS, win some store credit, buy a standard deck, start grinding standard, like maybe. Arena grinding is a real way for people to enter Magic the Gathering and build a collection for free which is not something that's existed in a practical way before. And on the note of collections, the pandemic does something really weird to the vast majority of players. So most players keep up with each set release, you know, buying whatever they need for their various formats. You know, maybe you're keeping up with a standard deck. And when all of a sudden you have a collection that's two or three years out of date, it's not oh, it's 20 bucks this week to update my deck so I can play in my FNM. That's fine. Now it's, oh, I need three to $500 at once to build a standard deck. Or, oh, all these crazy staples came out for modern. You know, I'm, I'm now down multiple hundreds before I can update my deck. And limited play ate shit so hard that they made new booster packs to compensate for the lack of people actually sitting down and drafting in stores. You did not have the ability to draft and build your collection and stores did not have the ability to just buy all the rares that people didn't want out of the drafts and store stock became harder to get and individual stock. I remember at the end of Lorwyn block, like I drafted a lot during time spiral, Lorwyn, Shadowmoor, that era. And at the end of Lorwyn block, it was like, oh, I need a, a deck for regionals. Uh, I don't really play standard. Let me check my draft leavings. And it's like, play set to Cryptic Command, got that. Reflecting Pools, Vivid Lands, got it all. Like, you just had it. And that whole thing is just gone. So something that I'd like to address here is there was two major factors happening, which was 
Webcam EDH took off. We mentioned that. But those players were buying dual lands. They were buying Mox Diamonds. All of these reserveless cards, people had an extra reason to buy them. And all of a sudden, with the stimulus checks that a lot of Americans received, there was a bubble with magic cards where cards that were highly sought after were being bought by investors. They were being bought by players and the price of a lot of staples just went through the roof. So when Phil mentioned being able to spend $20 here or there, that $20 didn't get you nearly as far as it did previously. Physical cards becoming more expensive and arena existing where you could play for no money and the primary way to play magic being unsanctioned casual play among private spell tables or discord calls leads to a different understanding about what a magic card actually needs to be which we're going to spend a lot of time on in a minute but we could start to see the erosion of the desire to actually own real magic cards i have two more points that i would like to address so one many americans lost their jobs over the pandemic and were forced to sell out of their collections, which was tough to do because you couldn't go to an SCG or a Grand Prix and sell your collection. That couldn't happen. So now players had to find game stores that would even buy cards because it's tough to sell cards during the pandemic because you didn't have a storefront. So a lot of players had to turn to online marketplaces and try to figure out what to do on their own. The other thing is many people just weren't selling. Like it was tough to find cards to buy. So you had people trying to sell out that struggled to sell out because there wasn't these events. And then you had tough times finding it because at these SCGs or Grand Prix, vendors buy thousands of cards. Some vendors even take out bank loans so they have enough money to buy these cards. But without that, they were struggling to find the inventory that didn't come from these new booster packs that Brian was talking about. So something that kind of starts to happen also is that Watsi's outlook changes a lot. They realize this commander market, this casual market, is doing so much of the heavy lifting for Magic, and they start to push out more releases towards that market. We start getting a huge influx of secret lair products, more commanders re- releases, uh, you know, stronger universes beyond things. And we also see a shift away from events and a shift to content creators or let let me not say from events from constructed magic tournaments to things like magic fests that feature artists and content creators youtubers twitch streamers cosplayers and watsi stops pushing organized play as a major priority and starts appealing to the casual crowd. And this comes with getting rid of play the game, see the world mentality. Play the game, see the world was an actual slogan that Wizards of the Coast used to promote the Pro Tour. And then they'd show pictures of like Paulo Vitor Damodarosa hoisting a trophy in Puerto Rico, uh, John Finkel hoisting a trophy in Malaysia. It, and they had all these really cool images to push the play the game, see the world narrative. And then they were already kind of rolling it back. Remember, hashtag pay the pros and stuff. There was a lot of stuff going on with the quiet erosion of organized play support, even leading up to the pandemic. But once it hit, it was kind of like uh, supermarket sweeps, like let's just shut down all this stuff. And whether they used the pandemic as an excuse to do some big moves they were planning anyway, 
or if they really just had to because it didn't make sense to do anything else. That is not part of the conversation anymore. Now the conversation is very much playing magic is negative EV and you're crazy if you think you're going to make a living doing this. And that's coming from the people who are making a living doing this or at least would have been six years ago. Now at these magic cons, the Pro Tour is a part of the magic con. You know, the Pro Tour is upstairs at a magic con. You can wander over and see it. And, you know, there will be a really cool stage. You know, there might be some sort of like smoke effects or, or fun lights or something like that. But a lot of people will walk by, say, what's that? And someone will be like, oh, it's the Pro Tour. The other person will be like, oh, okay. And then they're going to go to the vendor. They're going to go and play their games of, of casual commander. A lot of that mystique around the Pro Tour has fallen off. Well, I, I believe part of that was the Pro Tour changed. It became the Mythic Invitational uh, through Arena exclusively. And then that title changed. Uh, it became like the Magic Championships or something along those lines. And the goalposts were moved. The Hall of Fame no longer existed. And before you knew it, people that like Brian Kibler were no longer even invited to the arena events. And it's like part of the mystique of playing on these events was you wanted to test your ability against the best. But after a while, it wasn't the best anymore. It was familiar usernames from Magic Online. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it does take the shine off just a little bit. You can't accumulate your way up to that space anymore. There is there are invites just cold hard invites you win the correct tournament to make it to your regional qualifier then you top eight top 16 i don't even know how it works you do well enough at your regional qualifier that you go to the pro tour and then if you do well enough at the pro tour you could come to the next pro tour in the olden days there were pro points where maybe you min cash a grand prix but you get two or three pro points at the end of the season you get the 15 points you need to get qualified to the next pro tour and you can have a string of consistent low finishes or consistent medium high finishes, I guess, uh, depending on what your definition of low is. Consistent finishes could keep you on the train. I mentioned before when I won the Grand Prix, I qualified for three consecutive Pro Tours. And that was the season where they were they were trying to do partial invites. And the way that worked is you had a whole season to fill your invite bar, basically. And once your invite invite bar was full, you queued for the rest of the year. It was kind of like the old uh, gold status maybe silver. Uh, I think it was gold where you were invited to Pro Tours, but you didn't get any bonuses for being there. I played in the first Pro Tour of the year, Pro Tour Phoenix, the first Pioneer event, and the one right before the world shut down. And I earned one third of an invite. I filled my bar one third of the way, first event of the year, and I was queued for the next two Pro Tours, and I was ready to show up to Grand Prix until that bar was full. And then COVID hit, and even though they kept running Pro Tours on Arena, they got rid of partial invites. They just said, these are going to stand alone. They are what they are. And we are not going to honor what we said was going to be the the plan. Obviously, the plan has to change, but they got rid of even stuff that they probably could have supported into the pandemic. And it's just use it or lose it. There is no partial credit. At these magic events now, um, and why don't we go ahead and talk about the, the recent SCG event? Where, where was this SCG event? Does anybody remember? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. So there was a 231-player SCGK SCG-20K that was sharing a room with a competitive EDH event, a Flesh and Blood PTQ, Lorcana 1K events, a casual play command zone, and a bunch of other smaller, like, ticketed events. So there might be a thousand people in that room, 
but there sure as hell aren't a thousand people in the the main event like there would have been some number of years ago. Right. The main event side event model of these where there is one thing where we are the hall was rented to do this. This is why we're here. But if you're just stuck here because your friends are winning and you're not, you could play a side draft or an eight person constructed win a box and just some side offerings attached to a main event. Now, everything is kind of even and the event is the con like welcome to the con what would you like to do at the con the modern 20k has just as much credibility as the lorcana 1k and all sorts of people are there doing all sorts of things and i don't know I, I genuinely have no idea i'm not hypothesizing anything here i don't know if that makes the money that just having a modern 20k would have and everyone has to play in this if they want to be here this weekend or if this still just works out great for the tos but Seeing a 231 player 20k is pretty jarring. I also would like to point out here, there's multiple games in the same room. Flesh and Blood, Lorcana, and then obviously Magic the Gathering. If you go back five years, it was always just Magic the Gathering. And over time, you saw Wizards of the Coast lose faith or players losing faith in Wizards of the Coast uh, via secret layers and changes in organized play. Pro tours or pros not being paid anymore, uh, card quality issues, etc. Little bit by little, players just trusted Wizards of the Coast less. And all of a sudden, some of these players in the game, and I mean like companies running large events, started to realize, hey, we need to start pivoting a little bit away from Magic and have some sort of a failsafe in case Magic goes south. And all of a sudden, Flesh and Blood starts to rise. Lorcana comes out from Disney. You know, the, this is SCG and other TOs recognizing like we shouldn't have all of our eggs in the magic the gathering basket because magic is kind of unstable right now years ago like when i was living in roanoke and scg was my local store there were always other days for card games there was a pokemon night there was a Yu-Gi-Oh night but they always kind of felt like hey we're gonna run this for the people who like it not this is a part of our business model you know and now, like, these One Piece events, Lorcana events, like, they are absolutely everywhere. They're, they're a part of the business model now. They are a reason people come out. One more post-lockdown thing to talk about, which is going to launch us into our next section, is the huge influx of product types and quantity uh, makes building a deck actually really hard. It's hard to order cards for a deck from a single vendor. If you do a multi-package order from TCG Player, you're tracking tons of packages, you risk suspicious folks, uh, you risk packages getting lost, you risk whatever. And TCG Player is pretty good at covering those losses, but it is annoying if you need a deck for two weeks from now and you can't get one package from one place because most vendors can't stock all of it or they can't stock all of the stuff in the way that you want it because of all the different printings. And there's a lot going on with the ability to complete a deck and the ability of vendors to meet what anyone who walks up to their table might want from them in that moment. I started playing Magic in 2010. I had never used TCG Player until after the pandemic when I started building EDH decks because Star City was just my local store for years. They had everything. Uh, Post-lockdown, I went to try to build an EDH deck and SCG was out of like 20 cards I needed. I was like, whoa, 
that's weird. How does TCG player work? Yep. I'm not here to shoot shots at any individual business, but I also was a SCG ride or die. I could just get a fair market price and they'll have everything for probably 10, 15 years. And then suddenly I tried five or six times in a row and they just could not fill my order. And that happened within the last few years. And now I just make it work from a hodgepodge of sellers wherever they come from. And and note that like when I say SCG here, the same would be true of any major online retailer. Like I'm, I'm sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc. now. I, I try to buy from them whenever I can. But even another large store like them, like they're, they're not always going to have everything. And sometimes I can wait uh, before they restock and other times I can't because I've got a tournament coming up. Right. Let's jump into this next one. We are going to talk about the fundamental shift in the mindset about proxies. And I want to define some terms here. A proxy is an official object issued in extreme cases by a tournament official. This is like if you open your seal deck and one of your cards is ripped in half right out of the pack. Or in the case of Nexus of Fate, when the only version of that that existed was a curled foil, there was a broad acceptance of you can write Nexus of Fate on a basic mountain. And that is an official accepted proxy for the card Nexus of Fate that you do own. And when you play your mountain proxy, you bring your Nexus of Fate out of your deck box and show it. And just recently, there was an issue where in round one of a tournament, somebody's opponent spilled coffee over their entire deck. Just They were just like, hey, nice to meet you, Blatt. Here's my coffee all over your cards. A judge proxied, I think, like 47 cards out of that deck. So that player didn't have to buy a new deck on short notice like that. That's what a proxy is. The next term is a playtest card. And this is an object used by players to represent a card that they don't actually own in unsanctioned games. Wizards of the Coast has said in the past that they don't care about playtest cards. They know people scribble Underground Sea on the back of a basic land and try out their the expensive cards. They don't care. And in best practice, neither of these things look like a magic card. They should be obviously fake or obviously not what they say they are. And there should be no error, no margin for error on what you're looking at when you look at it. Which brings us to a counterfeit which is an object intentionally designed to deceive people into thinking it's a magic card. Wizards of the Coast has always had a zero-tolerance policy about counterfeits. The term proxy is just broadly used to describe all of these objects. When you're talking to people, when you're at the LGS, when you're engaging on social media, a proxy could be a playtest card, it could be a counterfeit, and in fact, people rarely actually mean proxy as far as an official object issued by a tournament official. But playtest cards and counterfeits all covered under the term proxy when people just talk about it. All right. So let's talk about like attitudes towards these cards in, in the, the pre-lockdown times. So you occasionally use proxies. And from here, we're just going to use proxy to refer to all these various things. You occasionally see proxies used in tournaments for damaged magic cards. Uh, I very much remember in legacy tournaments, Back when Kess Dissident Mage was playable, that most of those versions of that card were just marked because they were uh, from a set with a bad foiling. And so proxies were regularly issued for those. I remember using a lot of playtest cards for events. I usually just put Sharpie on basic lands, or occasionally we would print out, you know, a set of decks that had just like core basic text on them to to use for tournament testing i somewhat rarely 
Remember casual players proxying cards they owned so they don't have to keep moving them around? Like if someone is a big EDH player, they might proxy their Mana Crypt or Gaia's Cradle or a card of that general caliber that is good and they paid for, but they don't want to keep moving it from deck to deck every time that they want to play. And there were there were pretty common proxy vintage events. And by proxy, they actually mean playtest cards, but the term was proxy at the time. 10 proxy vintage was normal as far back as I can remember. When I started playing vintage and legacy or started being aware of those formats around 2008, 10 proxy vintage was the norm. And I have SCG receipts saved in my phone that I paid $350 each for my Mox Pearl and Mox Emerald during this era. And this was an era where it was generally accepted that, yes, of course, we can't ask our players to own a $350 card and we can issue proxies if we want these things to happen. Today, as of recording this video, TCG market price on a revised Bayou is $385. That's a non-blue dual land, and it costs more than a Mox did at the time where 10 proxy vintage was the norm. And of course, we can't ask players to own a $350 card if we expect them to compete. However, now even the non-blue duels are more than that cost at the time. Now let's kind of talk about the, the current narrative. Like, where are we at end of 2023, beginning of 2024? I think the biggest question in the room is the reserve list, right? Like it's creating a chokehold on legacy, but mostly just eternal formats. And it's not helping that commander uses a lot of the same card pool in some aspects because the, the price of dual lands is mostly driven by commander at this point, not legacy or any other eternal format. And very specifically, like if you asked me, what is the magic format that I expect to take off in the next couple of years? The answer is unquestionably CEDH, competitive EDH. Like, if you want to build a pipeline, like, get those casual players to get slightly more invested in, in Commander, like, that's a fantastic way to do it. Well, guess what? My Tivit list, I think, is $17,000 in paper, uh, largely due to a Time Twister, a handful of dual lands, and a few other very expensive cards. Uh, that is just fully outside of the budgetary constraints of most hobby level magic players even even relatively competitive ones who are serious into the hobby yep my my blue farm tim necrom cedh deck i mean i have not purchased the cheapest versions i've been around for a long time i have the benefit of having some bling laying around uh but at the base cheapest version of that deck you need every dual land that doesn't tap for green because it's all four colors. And then you need every fetch land to make this every dual land mana base work. And then you need mana crypt. Some builds play time twister or, and most builds play wheel of fortune. Intuition is in this deck and it just adds up like several hundred dollars at a time in magic's most up and coming format being a competitive. So the argument in regular EDH is you don't need an underground C drowned catacombs is fine. Like you don't need that. There's nothing on the line. But if you make a tournament version and there is stuff on the line, you actually do need Underground Sea to be most competitive. And a lot of these players have the mindset, play the person, not their wallet. 
So a lot of these CEH mindset people, they are okay with playtest cards. They are okay with proxying, but many players want the real thing. And that's kind of where the scarcity comes from. And the tournament organizers for the CEDH scene recognize this reserve list problems. And most people running CEDH events are running them as you can 100% play all, as many playtest cards as you want, as many proxies as you want. Uh, and there's some folks like Eminence Gaming who are growing a fantastic tournament seed, scene by doing this. Now, not everyone is on board with this. Uh, I believe the SCG events are all, you know, using actual factual magic cards in sanctioned play. But there's a lot of grassroots CEDH events that are not really grassroots anymore. They're becoming a real solidified thing. Yep. And many of the legacy organizers as well have embraced any number of playtest cards or a robust list or anything on the reserve list can be represented with a non-magic card. And that has just kind of become necessary in a lot of ways because of the reserve list for people to get access to these exciting formats that they would like to play. What do you do if you're a player and you are priced out of something that you enjoy? you find a way that you can still engage with that thing, right? So if people go, I'm priced out of this, I can't play this, I I will just proxy up a deck. You know, I will fire up the printer, I'll cut out some air quotes magic cards, and I will just play. Right, and the pipeline that used to exist is Wizards of the Coast saying, yeah, playtest cards are fine. And they understand that if you like magic enough, someday you'll join a tournament and you'll have to buy real cards. But now many of the tournaments in eternal spaces, including CEDH, most markedly even, does not actually require you to buy real magic cards anymore. And with the erosion of organized play and you know, standard being a non-thing at the local store and Wizards of the Coast doing very little to put tournaments worth playing on the map, most people just don't see a reason to buy actual magic cards anymore. Uh, Cedric, we referenced Cedric's post a few times already on Twitter, and Ben Sec had a, a separate jump-off point where he was talking about the, the market metrics of selling things to casual players rather than putting money into building a tournament circuit. And his point was that it's easier to connect the dots to casual players where you advertise a new EDH precon to them and they buy it. And you can track that because you have that sales information. Whereas a competitive player, there's a complex matrix of relationships between Wizards of the Coast, tournament organizers, local game stores, traveling vendors, and everyone who's part of this ecosystem. And it's really hard to just point at this is the dollar value of this person. For that reason, we keep getting commander products and we don't keep getting new tournaments. In in that mindset, uh, Ben Rasmussen, a longtime Magic player from the Madison area, he had a great uh, quote where he called it annoyance level of cost, where a casual player who treats Magic like a board game, and I know a bunch of these people where it's just like, you go over and it's like, do you want to play Settlers of Catan or uh, Codenames or Magic the Gathering or Risk? 
and it's just like a game on their game shelf unlike all of us sickos who it's like it's life and blood but those people if magic reaches an annoyance level of cost they will not spend money even if they like the game because they don't need to why not just print off a Gaia's Cradle? Why would I spend $600 on a Magic Cards when it's just me and my friends chilling here? And But whereas tournament players, they might be annoyed by the cost. But if you like Elves, if you like Cradle Control, you're going to have to find a way to get those Gaia's Cradles if you want to play that deck in a tournament. To me, like this is my theory. Uh, money used to be backed by a gold standard where like every dollar in circulation, the government had an equal amount of gold somewhere in a room. And that was the backing of the currency. Tournaments were the gold that backed Watsi's currency, which is real magic cards. And I, I think that undermining tournaments has created this world where if you're not going to play sanctioned magic, why would you buy a magic card? And as a sanctioned magic player, you know, you are kind of sold this idea. Like you put money into the game, you get these cards and then your skill at the game can get you that money back. Or faith in the secondary market where I buy Gaia's Cradle now and I know about the reserve list. I know there will be tournaments in the future. I know that people will need Gaia's Cradles in the future and there's not going to be more of them. I can sell out of this for close to, if not more, than I paid for it when I'm done with it. Which is also no longer true if the massive audience for a Gaius Cradle, which is casual and eternal gamers, no longer need to buy cards. So earlier I spoke a little bit about the breach of trust between players and Wizards of the Coast. This is a perfect opportunity to talk about buying cards at a certain value and then trying to sell them later. With Wizards of the Coast reprinting cards into the dirt with master sets, sometimes you would buy cards that weren't necessarily reserveless cards, but format staples, Tarmogoyfs, Shocklands, Fetchlands, that would usually trickle up in value, but all of a sudden were being reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. So if you had spent $90 on a Tarmogoyf, which, by the way, wasn't even close to half of its peak, when you went to go sell it, you'd be lucky to get $35, $40. As of right now, you can buy Tarmogoyfs on TCG Player for less than $10. It's $6. Yeah, and at its peak, Tarmogoyf was close to $300. And remember the Grand Prix where on coverage, somebody drafted a foil Tarmogoyf because it was worth so much money that it was worth just yeeting a pick from their top eight Grand Prix draft. Like it was worth more than whatever the place was of having the strongest common from the pack. They just put a foil Tarmogoyf straight under their sideboard on coverage in a Grand Prix top eight with Pro Tour invites on the line. That's what we're talking about compared to, I just pulled up a card uh, doubling season because I know this is a great example. This is a casual staple. This card was lots of money, like 50, 100 bucks. It was the type of thing that if you reprint this once in a while, just give a few more out and then put it in the vault for a while, it could stay a high value casual staple forever. Doubling season was originally in Ravnica, which was, I think, 2006, 2007. And then it was a Judge Foil and then Modern Masters. Then it was printed in Modern Masters, Battle Bond, Double Masters. It was had multiple printings in Double Masters. Then it was in both Commander Masters and Wilds of Eldraine Guest Enchanting Tales sheet, both this year. This thing has just been pummeled. It went from one printing to one secondary kind of special printing as a judge foil. And now there's literally 10 printings of this card quickly. And this is the type of thing that is undermining faith 
in Wizards' ability to manage their their cards worth owning in the long term. And I I think Magic 30 was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for so many people. Like it was so close, just so close to something that could have been a perfect product. And instead, we kind of ended up with like overpriced, non-tournament legal dual lands. And at this point, a lot of people start turning to Chinese sites that have community made resources that can kind of collect a whole bunch of art, some official magic art, some fan made art, and you can kind of click some buttons and submit a deck list and it'll it'll poop out a proxied magic deck for you. There there are sites that just print whatever you send them. And then there are resources made by the magic community to make that very easy for you. And somebody took the time to build a website that sole job is to convert somebody else's art assets into something that you can print easily through another third party. And real effort was made to make this like easy to do when five years ago, this was unconscionable. And now it's quite easy to access. And the kind of weird thing here is that you can choose to very clearly make your proxies not look like real magic cards. You know, you can put a black lotus on the back. You can put proxy, not for sale, not real magic card on the back. Or you can take a picture of a magic back, slap it on there, and all of a sudden, like, you have something that is a very passable counterfeit card if it is in a sleeve or especially if it's double sleeved and if you're a bad actor you could do some damage with these these printed cards these uh sometimes counterfeits sometimes playtest cards are a regular occurrence at casual command fests like we've been talking about how do you get access to a tournament but even just regular folks I've played a lot of casual games at Magic Cons. I went to all the US Magic Cons last year. I went to a bunch of SCG Cons, played a lot of Casual Commander with randos. And sometimes someone will be like, is it okay if I have like some proxies in my deck? And I've never seen anyone say no. And other times players are so accustomed to it that they just send it. You just like in the middle of the game, they play a Gaia's Cradle that has like Super Mario on the art or something. It's very clearly not a magic card, but also no conversation was had if the people around them are okay with them playing something that's not a magic card in their magic game. It's just so ingrained in the casual and EDH culture at this point. It's just like, yeah, whatever. You're a cop if you complain. And a lot of times the conversation around them is, whoa, that's art. Cool. What set is that from? Oh, it's a proxy. I made this one. And it's a thing of pride, not a thing of shame, like it might have been many years ago. The attitude has just done a complete 180. Yep. And a lot of time the follow-up is, could you sell me one of those? I like that art you made. And now you have a person selling something, making money off of somebody else's idea or like it's their art but Gaia's Cradle is not theirs to sell and it gets really complicated from here because some players at this point are being penalized for playing counterfeits that they believe to be real when they purchase them like if you so imagine the same scenario the casual EDH game where you're at Magic Con and someone's like wow that Grim Monolith is really cool and you're like it sure is you want to trade for it I've been trying to get rid of it 
somebody trades you a convincing looking grim monolith and you don't know any better then a year later you join a legacy tournament and you get disqualified because you can't afford to buy a new set of grim monoliths when it's determined that they're not real in the middle of the tournament this is no longer victimless uh, it's actually trickling into the mainstream in a way that these convincing playtest cards are being sold traded whether intentionally or unintentionally as magic cards to people who don't know any better, which includes the arena generation COVID lockdown players who might be handling physical magic decks for the first time. And they don't have that muscle memory of a 20 year veteran who might be able to pick up a card and know it's wrong right away. And these arena generation players, they're stepping into and commander masters was one of the worst printed sets ever as far as quality of everything like the paper was bad the foils are boomerangs it's a mess and if that's what you're used to you're not going to know what a real grim monolith is if someone has a convincing counterfeit from a chinese proxy site and you're just going to put that card in your deck so i'd like to go back to something real quick brian mentioned oh hey i like that mario art on your guy's cradle would you sell me one in the eyes of wizards of the coast you could be penalized just because you're selling counterfeit cards so you should really watch yourself and people around you because you don't want to be doing that sort of thing you don't want to be the one selling fake cards because you know the law can come down on you yeah that is discouraged there's this even weirder thing that's happening right now on top of the people who don't know they're playing fake cards there are people who know perfectly well that their cards are fake but are making it kind of a moral stance against capitalism to play cards they know are fake in sanctioned tournaments their argument is i have a right to play this game it's not my fault i don't have money and this is really complicated because like i'm trying to be really careful here because it is really tricky i want people to be able to play magic at the same time i recognize that magic is not a human right in the way that like healthcare and groceries are and it seems like there is a loud group of people who have taken the stance under uh ostensibly left-wing rally calls of you know dismantling capitalism and hurting big corporations where you can and if you see someone stealing baby food no you didn't magic gathering is not baby food there's not a starving baby on the other end there's a person who just wants to play in a magic tournament there there are some really stupid leaps being made in service of finding a moral stance that happens to align perfectly with what you ought to be doing and i think that's kind of a mess and it is and like i said it loops back to people if you have cards that you are playing intentionally in order to deceive tournament officials and your opponents who else will those cards deceive and when you're done with them where do they go six months from now does somebody who doesn't know any better get penalized and in trouble because they're playing your fake card that you put into the ecosystem this is this is not victimless at this point. Like Victims are emerging. There's lots of them from as recently as last weekend. Piggybacking on what Brian said, one of the rally cries that they have are game pieces should not cost money. And that's like ideal in a perfect world where everyone makes the similar amount of money or whatever. But that's just like not the way that our world is structured. And if you want to keep on playing Magic the Gathering, that's detrimental to Wizards of the Coast in this game. Because if no one's paying for game pieces, Magic might not exist in 10 years. And I think this point is really, 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 really fucking important. I love magic. A portion of my career is now like intimately linked to magic. I want magic to exist. I spend money on magic cards. I go to magic cons. I am a sponsored creator at many of these events. At the same time, I also want people to have access to really cool and fun formats 
like CEDH and Legacy and Vintage that many people will be just kind of priced out of due to the reserve list. So like there is a line here that you have to be careful not to cross. If people spend too much time and too many resources on these Chinese sites printing proxies, magic dies, right? But we also want the game to be fun and accessible to lots of people. What do you do? Yeah, this is this is really tricky. Uh, I I am not anti-proxy. Like I just want to say that clearly. Uh, I want people to play magic and have access to these cool things, like Phil just said. Uh, but I I think back to when I was building my vintage deck uh, back in 2008. I mean, cards were cheaper then. Is a different thing. But I had my whole rest of my deck foiled out before I owned my first piece of power. I just use store credit or money from the part-time jobs I had or traded in other stuff, just uh, upgrade that that chain of vapor to foil, upgrade those dark rituals to foil. And I was putting money into Magic's ecosystem and I had this beautiful foil deck and then just a bunch of power written on the back of foil cards that I'd wiped. I used acetone and wiped the art off some foils and I just like drew my own Black Lotus on a foil card. That was obviously not a card, but I was putting the money I could afford to spend back into magic, even though I couldn't do the big thing yet. And I think that's a really important thing if you want to support, if you want magic to exist, if you like magic and want to play it, it is incumbent on you to wherever you can, however you can, prop up a local game store. If you don't want to buy secret layers and uh, reward big corporations or whatever, your local game store who provides a place to play and the tournaments that you want to play in, they're going to close if everyone's just printing their own cards. Like everyone's got to find where their balance is on this. And I have found my balance, which is that I'm not going to play with playtest cards. When I first learned about this site that makes it very easy to generate cards, I'll admit I did it. I had a shipment sent to my house. I have a bunch of like cool EDH staples that look just a little wrong and they say proxy not for sale on the back. They're not counterfeits. And I just sleeved them up and played with them. And after a while, I was like, I hate this. I'm just going to buy these cards. And I'm in the position to do that. I've, I realized that it's not for me and it is part of the Magic the Gathering experience to play and collect and own cards. And that's where I've landed on it. And I know some folks are in the complete opposite where it's like, why would I ever own a card again if I could just do this? I don't think you have to be like me and own everything, but I also think you're actively harming Magic if you just refuse to support anyone who is part of this ecosystem. All right. So we're going to kind of go to the final segment of this podcast episode and Buckle up, we're not done yet. You get a long episode this week. Let's kind of talk about our ideal future. What do we need to do? What does WotC need to do? What do tournament organizers need to do? Um, Here are some of our thoughts. I think the first part, very clear, priority number one, you need to give the players a true reason to come out and play. You need to build a narrative of some kind. And you need to fucking sell it to players. Wizards of the Coast in the last three years has done such a fantastic job of building ties with influencers, cosplayers, and content creators. There are some absolutely wonderful people like Diana D'Amico who have done golden work in building up that side of the community. Well, now you have these magic ambassadors. Now you have tens maybe hundreds going into 2024 
of people who have been or will be sponsored creators at Magic Cons. Use them. Use them to build this narrative. Use them to show people why they should come out and play and what's on the line. I have offered that as feedback after each of the Magic Cons. I went to four of them last year, and I was a featured creator for three of them. They always ask for feedback, and my feedback is always use us more. Have a gigantic sealed deck tournament where every invited content creator is enrolled in the tournament. Just sell it as that. Like, you want to play against Josh Lee Kwai? You want to play against Gavin Verhe? You want to play against Bosch and Roll? They are going to be in this tournament, and then people will spend dollar bills to be part of that. Uh, just having us around playing casual commander, I don't think is the best use of us in that space. Another thing that Wizards, I think, needs to do as soon as possible is work with the existing TOs that are growing the competitive scenes. We mentioned Eminence. Uh, we didn't mention them by name, but Buffalo Check and Dip. There are a few big TOs with great communities who currently have to use playtest-friendly rule sets for their people to show up. And if Wizards of the Coast doesn't like that, they can attack those TOs and kill the communities that they've built, or they can work with those TOs and figure out what those TOs need to make this sustainable in the transition to requiring real magic cards to play magic. So for the subset of you that also play Super Smash Brothers, I want you to consider what Nintendo has done Every time Smash Bros. starts growing and something cool starts happening in a tournament seed, Nintendo is like, cease and desist order. Don't do this. Oh, you've set up an online emulator? No, you haven't. Cease and desist order. Watsy can take a different stance than just that and say, hey, what can we do to help? How can we work together instead of kind of being at odds with each other? And it probably ends up being an everybody wins situation on a long enough timeline. And we can't be on the profit, 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 make the number go up as the only thing that motivates magic. That That's not working. And obviously, Wizards of the Coast cannot take any kind of public stance where it's okay to play things that are not magic cards in a tournament. It just does not make any sense at all. And no business owner could make sense by saying, here, you could just fake the thing I make. It's free. It's insane to think like that. But whatever it is that prop up a TO, if they go no proxy and they lose some, some regulars for a while, financially su subsidize the event space so the TO doesn't take a bath if half their attendance shows up for a while. And then if people whether we need to give the format time to grow or we need to give people time to acquire the cards they need or whatever it is like maybe that's a, a shortcut or a way to help this but these communities are thriving telling the to stop doing what you're doing is bad for magic and also just to's saying it's okay for nobody to own a magic card is also bad for magic and uh, like all these groups got to work together I don't know about you guys, but I disagree on priority number one. I think priority number one needs to be a return to organized play to bring the gold standard back to magic cards. It needs to happen in a couple different ways. So going back to the beginning of the episode, Brian said, uh, oh, it happens like this. Then he corrected himself. He's like, wait, I don't actually know the 
path to the pro tour anymore neither do i it's so convoluted and confusing now with rcqs and then there's a a bigger one down in atlanta or some crazy thing for a regional or i don't know but like no one actually knows the proper path anymore and it's confusing so i think you need easier defined ways within the current magic system to even get to the pro tour that if it's even still called that like that's one of the most confusing things is that names keep on changing and so do the avenues we just need organized play to come back in a meaningful way and you can have it be a multi-step thing but grand prix giving invites to the top eight was an amazing feeling spiking a ptq was a really good feeling what confuses me is i know for the current system my local games were fires 10 person uh, invite tournaments that get you to the regional down in atlanta when you play in one of those online online there are like 150 people just to get to that same regional event down in atlanta it doesn't make any sense uh, if that's going to be the structure. And it's just really bad for the game, I think. One of my local stores, who I will not name, they don't have chairs, they don't have a bathroom, but somehow they were an approved WPN location and they get an RCQ every season and they tell their locals who like come in and shop there, like, hey, we, we got this thing on Saturday. They cap them at 10 and they hope that only the eight people that they told show up. And it's just sort of like a reward for regular shoppers to have an easy path to the regional Pro Tour qualifier versus other stores in my city who hype it as what it deserves to be and they get 50, 60 people. One of these things just should not be allowed and I think is a disgrace to the game. And the other one is doing it right, but they both only get one slot at the end of the day and it's just really annoying. Another thing that we need as Magic players and especially as judges is consistent working technology this has been a problem for years and years and years things like judge software like wizards event reporter would often crash have issues and so judges would go back to a, an older program walter for running larger events like gps there are official magic the gathering apps that are quite frankly not acceptable uh, i have been to magic events where i had to download a magic app in order to do something and i deleted it from my phone the moment that i had done the thing that i needed to do we, we need good quality apps that consistently do the things that we need to do and this may require some outsourcing there are some tournament organizers who use their own software again like eminence gaming has done some great work in that with the CEDH front in particular. And like WotC needs their own stuff or they need to just cave and like use the stuff that is working and make it the gold standard of the industry. Yep. Uh, MTG Melee is out there. Uh, I know KubeCon developed their own pairing software. There's a bunch of smart, passionate people out here who have done this work in an important way already. And one of the dirty secrets that people who weren't judges at Grand Prix don't know is that even Walter, the Wizards Large Event reporting software that they used to run Grand Prix on, was horrible. And there was one guy, his name was Nick Fang, and he was the scorekeeper at every Grand Prix, and he got paid handsomely to do it, because he was the one who could troubleshoot Walter on the fly without ruining people's weekend. I don't believe he's available anymore. I don't believe TOs on the scale they're running could afford him without Nick Fang in the chair. There's just nothing. It's really embarrassing that you can't play in a stable tournament on a Wizards of the Coast issued software when that's kind of their thing. 
And once you have this stable, stable software, you need to build towards something that reinvigorates people, truly gets them excited. Imagine you're watching GP coverage, you know, whatever it's going to be called, and in between rounds, bam, one of your favorite content creators all of a sudden has like a commercial spot where they have produced some sort of cool video for the, the event that is previewing an upcoming product. Imagine the hype of in the middle of a broadcast, hey, and here is the announcement of the reserved list being broken. Here is the new product where we're going to re-release these cards. And guess what? They are going to feed into legacy vintage and CEDH events that we have scheduled in, you know, June, September, and February. You can build a crazy narrative using the tools you have at your your disposal. And another one that I thought of was like, you know how we have some players who have their own magic cards? You know, we have Fairy Mastermind from recently, Dark Confidant. Imagine if you turn that into an event at one of these magic cons. Like, spike this event, you win your face on a card. Or play this local event at your shop. And now you're in the uh, player card qualifier tournament, where if you win this, you get your face on a magic card. You turn it into a highly televised thing, you know, where you interview a bunch of players, you know, talk about what sort of card they would want to make for your next major coverage thing. You have an interview with the creators where they talk about actually designing the card and the artists about how they, you know, got the player's likeness on them. There's so many things you could do to just absolutely drive the hype train and make people lose their goddamn minds and you just have to find whatever that thing is that's going to accomplish that goal and sell it yeah i gotta say while you were talking i was thinking about do i want joe rando just appearing on a magic card that i open in a pack and then i realized i don't care the recent world championship cards like it says javier dominguez Magic World Champion 2019 or whatever year it was. That's the flavor text of Javier Dominguez's magic card that that one one night that I forget the name of that picks up equipment easily. That guy and like all of the Apollo uh, Elite Spellbinder, like the flavor text is their full name and what event they won. If there's just like an uncommon in a draft set that random people somewhere in their homes will open and it says like Phil Gallagher, winner of the MagicCon Vegas 2024 Standard Challenge, that person is going to say, what's that? How do I get on a Magic card? Even if they've seen nothing except the end product that ends up in their hands, it would take a couple of years because designing cards takes time to really hit the stream. But I imagine you would see people showing up to Magic Gods just for that opportunity. And they would have to be good at Standard if they actually want to win it. And they would have to buy in-print boosters to get Standard cards. And I don't know, like that that does seem like the type of thing that would be worth going for. We also got to address the growing competitive multiplayer formats. This is tricky because kind of the whole point of Commanders is not meant to be competitive. For Wizards of the Coast to embrace CEDH as a tournament format, would then cause some confusion about what is the point of this format. I don't know how strongly the existing EDH rules committee fights with wizards about embracing competitive commander or not. I don't know if that's a thing or not. I know uh, the professor on Tolaria Community College has made quite clear his belief that CEDH is the next evolution of both tournament magic and EDH together. And there is no current official multiplayer tournament documentation in the magic tournament rules or ipg there's some stuff like residual stuff from back when two-headed giant was a pro tour format but nothing recent and we already talked about how do you get these communities to a spot where 
they're playing with magic cards and uh, that's complicated. That's above my pay grade. But I think Wizards subsidizing TOs if they take a short term loss in favor of long term boosting the the secondary market, uh, like maybe that that's a way to go. I don't know. They also need to do this in a way that makes sense to the community because CEDH should not have its own ban list. The point of CEDH is that it's EDH cranked to 11. And if it gets its own ban list, then it's a separate format and it's not EDH anymore. It's something different. Handling all that with care, kind of letting CEDH just hang out in the woods, playing cards that aren't real with their own rule sets is, I think it's a a missed opportunity for Wizards. It's not that CEDH won't thrive without them. It's that I think CEDH is an opportunity for Wizards to jump onto a rocket that's already shooting out, out, out into space. If I am, you know, a Watsi board member or whatever, I want to be a, a part of this. You know, I want my piece of that pie. This is something that is going to succeed. I would like to be a part of it, not ignore that thing that exists that all sorts of people in my target audience are doing. And also, what a great way to transition people to organized play, right? The casual EDH to competitive EDH to 60-card constructed pipeline is very real. I have seen so much of that in my timeline in the last couple of years um, where, like, let's take someone like Eliana, who has been, you know, a casual EDH player for years, got invested in CEDH a little bit, went to uh, some events uh, like the most recent Atlanta CEDH event run by Eminence Gaming and is now playing in Legacy Weekly events and owns a Legacy deck. Like that pipeline is real. Lots of people will go through that pipeline if you give them a path and a reason to care. She just top eight an event this past weekend, by the way. Good job, Liliana. We see you grinding. Uh, and and yeah, that pipeline is awesome. And I want both casual players to find whatever course it takes to end up playing magic tournaments. And I also want tournament players to find whatever path it takes to enjoy casual magic. And I think they're all friends together and they can all coexist. And the big stupid thing in between all of this connecting tissue is the cost of dual lands. And it's pretty annoying. And has been annoying a long time. I'm, I'm deeply anti-reserve list and have been forever. And this is coming from someone who would lose a lot of theoretical money if dual lands were reprinted tomorrow. I don't care. I would rather have people play magic. And I would like that the source of those cheap, plentiful dual lands is a magic vendor who supports the community by being the middle person between Wizards of the Coast and players to actually get people the cards they want. And I want that best business to be sustainable. And I don't want that business to come from a Chinese fake card printing company. Uh, like, I think this is actually existential to Magic if it's not solved kind of quickly. There are some other smaller things that probably need to happen. Our official judging documentation probably needs clearer rules for how to address potential fake cards in tournament play because it is going to become more and more a common appearance as people intentionally and unintentionally do it. Uh, This maybe requires some training for judges. This maybe requires someone on retainer that there's like an expert that's on call for these sorts of issues. Or, you know, maybe we're supposed to tell judges like, if it's passable, don't make a big deal out of it. If it's clearly fake, you know, if that's the magic online underground sea art, you know, get them if there's reasonable doubt err on the side of the player or something we we need guidelines for what we're supposed to do yeah this might be a little tinfoil hatty but i think coming from the 231 player 20k that we talked about earlier many stories of 
fake or marked cards being sniffed out or cards that were accused of being fake that turned out to be real. Just all of these weird stories coming out. I feel like the judges were told specifically, look for fake cards, even if they are not necessarily qualified to do that. I just have a sense that that was planted in their ear by someone somewhere in that organization, whether on judge staff or from SCG or maybe down from Wizards through SCG. I don't know, but I judged for a very long time and never once was I looking closely at cards to see if they were real. I was just seeing if they were marked. I was seeing if the deck was legal and if a card was just like, like Phil said, blatantly not a thing that exists, I would question it. Never once was I like looking at someone's blood crypt, taking it out of the sleeve and trying to feel if it was it felt real or not. That's just insane. I don't know where that came from. I kind of hate that it is now a thing that needs to be said. It because there is this contingent of folks who think it is not only acceptable, but morally imperative to play with fake cards and try to get away with it. I guess kind of the last thing here, and I think Watsi has gotten the memo on this one, is that there needs to be kind of pumping the brakes a bit on the quantity of product released. Players have kind of malaise vendors are having trouble keeping stock of everything you can't reasonably build an on a deck online by going from one vendor it's great it's so great that they have different types of product aimed at different audiences you know the competitive players need different things from casual players that need different things from the collector but when we get out of spoiler season and we get our hands on the cards for the first time and before the pre-orders arrive the next set of spoilers are starting it's really easy to lose faith in magic and watsi needs to get that faith back they need to build that narrative they need to get people invested again yep i agree completely with that and then circling back to my doubling season point earlier when you just bought a doubling season because it got reprinted for the first time in six years and then a new set is previewed and it has doubling season in it two sets later insane like that that cannot happen that's bad for everyone we love magic we we spend money on magic portions of our our careers our daily lives are are linked to magic we've been in it for huge portions of our life and we we want that to continue we want people to spend money on cards we want them to feel good about spending money on cards we want them to play in tournaments with these cards that they they purchased we also want the game to be accessible and fun we want people to have a reason to get up and play Magic. For a lot of people right now, they don't have some or all of those things. So here's to hoping in 2024 and beyond that we start to get a path forward and we start making steps forward towards some of these things actually happening.